0: Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. Judges chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. And if you look on screen, uh, the start of Judges, it takes us some getting oriented to, but uh, at the end of the book of Joshua, which is right before Judges, uh, the Israelites had been called by God and led out of slavery from Egypt and led into the promised land, the land of Canaan, and they had conquered that green part of the land that you see on screen. Don't worry, there won't be a a quiz later, but that's what they conquered so far. And yet they still had more land to conquer in the promised land. So at the beginning of Judges chapter one last week, God called different tribes of Israel to go into the land and take the land. And for the most part, they were successful. Except, do you remember what phrase kept being repeated last week time and time again? That they failed to drive out the Canaanites. They failed to drive out the Parasites. They failed to drive out the, the other ites, whatever ites were living there, and they remained among them. So that may not seem like a big deal to us, but the big deal for them back then was if they lived among a foreign people, then the foreign people would influence them to follow other gods and worship idols. So we're actually going to see that today. In fact, uh, as we hear that there's other people remaining in the land, uh, you know, the music should be queuing, dun, dun, dun. you know, that's That's really what's gonna happen here. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're gonna start reading at verse six. And I'm gonna read a significant chunk, so bear with me here. Judges two, beginning at verse six, says, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done For Israel, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. So, just real quick, did you notice that under Joshua's leadership, they did so well? I mean, doesn't it just go to show that if you are a leader in any field, whether business, education, a teacher, a coach, you're a parent, Sunday school class teacher? you have a tremendous opportunity to lead well. I mean, don't be discouraged. I mean, some of you are here this morning maybe discouraged by the lack of people following you or the lack of influence you have. Well, God has called you to lead and it can make a difference, just like we saw with Joshua. But then we get to verse 10 after Joshua dies. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Baal is a foreign god. It literally means Lord. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused, what? The Lord's anger. Because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer "'Able to resist. "'Whenever Israel went out to fight, "'the hand of the Lord was against them, "'to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them.'" And it says here, they were in what? Great distress. "'Then the Lord raised up judges or leaders "'who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. "'Yet they would not listen to their judges, "'but prostituted themselves to other gods "'and worshiped them. "'They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors "'who had been obedient to the Lord's commands.'" Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Verse 20, therefore the Lord was what again? Very angry with Israel, and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. So we're almost done. We're in chapter three, a few more verses. Says, these are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan or the Promised Land. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Labo Hamath, they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their ancestors through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. So you may be seated. So I don't think you have to be a biblical scholar to answer this, but after we read that text, are we encouraged or are we discouraged about Israel? What's the answer? Discouraged. Because what is Israel's main problem before God now? You can shout it out. What is it? Idolatry. Idolatry. Idol worship. They are worshiping and serving other gods. Because they failed to drive out the nations ahead of them. It says in verse 5 there, chapter 3, instead of the Canaanites living among the Israelites, it says the Israelites are living among the Canaanites and all the other ites that are there. Before I go into our outline this morning. How many of you have ever watched an infomercial before of some kind? How many of you have been sucked into one where like 10 minutes later, you're still watching this thing for some reason? See if you can guess this advertisement. What famous product is this from infomercials? All right. So here it is. Who hasn't grappled with the baffling question of how to keep warm while watching TV, yet still keep one's hands free to man the remote? What product are we talking about? Snuggie. Snuggie. How many are willing to admit they use, they have, and they use a Snuggie? You're welcome to bring it here on Sunday morning. That's fine if you're cold. Yeah. <laughs> have a Snuggie section up here, you know? <laughs> or think of other famous infomercials. There was Richard Simmons and Sweating to the Oldies. Some of you remember that? There was the thigh master. I mean, there was a lot of interesting products that you can buy for seven easy payments of $19.95. I mean, (laughs) you ever bought something from an infomercial? You don't have to raise your hand, but you know, infomercials are interesting because they kind of suck you in, but the reality is they often promise much in their infomercial. This product's going to change your life. You know, you can, you can have this product and never have to work out. You will have abs like, you know, a six pack, you know, they promise a lot But in actuality, most of them, except maybe for the Snuggie, fail to deliver, right? Most infomercials promise a whole lot more than they actually give. And I think that's true with idolatry. When we get sucked into worshiping other gods and and other things that compete for our affection with Jesus, they promise so much life and joy that if you worship this thing and give your life to this, it is going to give you so much in your life. But in actuality, they take a lot more than they give. So let's look at our sermon today in four parts. Part number one is what is idolatry? For some of you, this will be a review, but it's good to be reminded. What is idolatry? Very simply, idolatry is giving worth to someone or something more than God. It is worshiping someone or something more than God. And this isn't the only place in Judges where we see this, because we see this, they're serving the Baals and the Ashtoreth and another goddess, we see this, that this was a problem all throughout Scripture. If you go back to Exodus chapter 20, the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments. Let's read this. You shall have no other gods before me. That was the first of the Ten Commandments. Jesus also said in the New Testament when asked, what are the most important commands? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So if we fail to love God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind, we are committing What? idolatry. It's not that we don't love God, but we just love something more than God. If you look at Judges chapter 2 now, going back to our text, verse 11, the writer of Judges says this, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they did what? Serve the Baals. That verse kind of stuck in my mind this week, because here's a definition of evil. A definition of evil is doing what you want in the eyes of the Lord, and it's also serving other gods. I often think of evil of just doing bad stuff, but according to the Bible, evil is also serving and worshiping other gods. You know, if you think about Israel, they serve the Baals and the Ashtoreths. I was doing some research into these gods and goddesses, and Baal and Ashtoreth were thought to control the weather and allow it to rain so that your crops, you could have a good crop because they were very agricultural back then. They were thought to also give you a lot of livestock and healthy children because it was all about you know reproduction of crops and animals and people so you could survive. And this is getting a little bit gross, but Baal and Ashtoreth, it, it was thought that in order for them to produce those things, they had to sleep together as a god and goddess. And the way that you as a human being would get them to do this is you would go to a sacred temple and you would sleep with a temple prostitute in order to convince Baal and Ashtoreth to do the same so that they would give you rain and crops and livestock and abundance. Now, I know some of you are probably shaking your head like that's disgusting, but think of our culture for a second. Do we ever make sex a form of idolatry in our culture? Yeah. Just as they did in the very religious form at a temple, we do the same thing today. Think with me here of some examples. What are some things that we as Americans put before God here in 2019? Go ahead and shout some out. What are some things that maybe not not you, but somebody else does? (laughs) What are some things? You can shout them out. What are they? Work or career and achievement. Yeah. What else? Material Material goods. Yeah. Ooh, got personal there with sports. <laughs> whether we play the sport or whether we cheer on the sport. Yeah. Today we're going to gather on the TV and worship our favorite NFL team. What else? It's really bright up here. That's why I'm doing this. <laughs> Entertainment. Entertainment. Yep. Yeah, there's there's many gods and goddesses that pull at us, don't they? One of my favorite scholars talks about idols in terms of personal idols and religious idols and cultural idols. Let me give some examples of each just for a second to really hit this home. But think of personal idols. One that was mentioned was possessions and money. Ever been pulled to have more money and stuff? I know I have. Jesus said very famously, you cannot serve what? Both God and money. Because money has this God-like pull that if you just have enough money, you'll feel more secure. Or if you just have enough money, you'll feel more significant, like you've arrived and achieved the American dream. Or if you just have enough money, you'll feel like you're in control of your life. And by the way, if you are getting married or you are married, you know that one of the biggest things that couples fight over is what? Money. Because often couples are looking to money for different things. Some are looking to it for security. So if our bank account is doing well, we feel secure rather than having our security in God. Or if our bank account is doing well, we feel significant that we can compete with the people around us. So money is one. Another one that's really popular is romance. I mean, just watch a good chick flick and you will see the God of romance put on display for that two hours. I want to ask you guys to raise your hand if you like chick flicks, but I know you do. <laughs> if you just find that Mr. or Miss right, then these movies tell you that life will be good. You'll have peace. It will solve all of your problems. And if you're married, you're probably chuckling because you know that that you're a mess and you married a mess, if you're honest, and then you give birth to little messes who are making all sorts of messes. I mean, the cycle continues. (laughs) If your spouse or significant other is, if you are making them the God of your life, then you are putting a burden on them that they cannot bear. Never were meant to bear. Another common idol in our culture is, is children. Now, God calls us to love our children. I'm not saying don't do that. Yes, you're to love your children and raise your children in the ways of the Lord. That's, our, that's part of the problem, maybe, in not passing on the faith and that we saw here in Judges 2. But what happens if our children become more important to us than God? What happens if they become the main source of our identity and sense of significance and security? Then we're gonna be horrible parents who we're either gonna overparent them because if they look badly, it's gonna look badly on us, or we're going to underparent them because we don't want our kids thinking bad about us, because that would just crush us. I mean, even good things, if they become the ultimate thing in our life, they become a bad thing. Let me say that again. Even a good thing that God meant us to have and enjoy like children, if they become the ultimate thing in our life, more than God, then it becomes a bad thing, an idol. So that's one category, personal idols. Another one that can hit close to home for me are religious idols. Do we ever as a church community have religious idols? And the answer is, of course we do. Someone mentioned in first service, tradition can be an idol for some of us. Or always wanting something new could be an idol too. Another one that I see is doctrinal correctedness not that I'm against having correct doctrine, don't mishear me, but sometimes, especially the really finer points of theology, we can divide over those things rather than be united around the main stuff. Or another common religious idol is ministry success, that if my church or my ministry, whatever I'm involved in is doing well, then I feel good and significant. And if it's not, I feel deflated and crushed because that's become my source of joy rather than God. Another one is ministry giftedness. Do we ever elevate leaders in the evangelical Christian world? You bet. They can become sort of celebrities if we're not careful, more than God. So there's personal idols we talked about. There's religious idols. And there's also idols of entire cultures. I mean, I'm not going to have you shout this out, but does, does our community and county have specific idols as a whole that we struggle with? Some of you can think of those. But let me just talk in broad strokes for a second. If you tend to be more conservative in your ideology, you tend to idolize, if I can use that word, the family. And even conservative values can kind of trump biblical values. That was no play on words, by the way. Trump biblical values. Well, if you're more liberal, often the idol of liberal people, politically speaking, is self. We're going to put the self at the center of everything as long as you can be free to express yourself and your identity and your true authentic self. And nobody can tell me what I I can't do because then you're judging me. We can make entire ideologies, almost idolologies, if I can use that word. So the question for you this morning, just in this first part, and really this is part of the key of of how do you get rid of your idols, is what is your personal idol today that you're struggling with? What is your Baal? What is your Asterith? I mean, the Israelites had theirs, but what's yours? We may not literally bow down to a statue, but we, we, make, we can make anything into an idol if we're not careful. This takes me to part two, the cycle of idolatry. We're gonna see this all through the book of Judges, and this applies to us. By the way, if you're not sure what your idol is, what's a good way to identify it? Ask somebody. I dare you to ask a close friend or a spouse, or parents, ask Your kids and say, hey, what do I value the most? Because I guess I'm guessing they know. If you're still not sure, look at what you spend your money on and your resources on. If you're still not sure, look at what makes you explosively angry. So if you're watching the NFL game today and and your team loses and you're just mad for like 24 hours straight, chances are that may be an idol. Look at what makes you explosively anxious and sad. And if you're still not sure, all through this, ask the Holy Spirit to put his finger on it in your life. And I'm telling you, he will. So let's go to the cycle of idolatry that we see with the Israelites. So we're going to see this cycle all through Judges. The first thing that we see is that the Israelites sin. They forsake God. They commit idolatry in verses 10 and 11 and 12. And then after that, number two, God is what? Angry. We saw that at least three times in our text, that God is angry because his people are forsaking him. And then number three, we see that their enemies oppress the Israelites. God allows the enemies to come in, all these ites, and oppress them, and plunder them, it says, and take them captive. And then number four, the Israelites cry out to God. And if you read our passage carefully, technically they didn't even cry out to God in our text. It just says in verse 15, they were in great distress. And in verse 18, that they were groaning under those who oppressed them. So even though they don't even specifically cry out to God here, God is so merciful and he's so gracious and he's so committed to his people that number five, he raises up a judge to deliver them. Judges like Othniel we'll see next week, or Gideon in chapter six and following And these judges aren't just people that we think in robes and making legal decrees. These are leaders and, you know, kind of saviors, deliverers, and military leaders. God raises up a judge to deliver them because they cried out. And then number six, they experience peace and rest. Although our text doesn't even say that here technically. It'll say that in future text. They experience peace and rest as long as the judge is alive. But then number seven, the judge dies, and then guess what happens? The people forget God, and the people sin, go back to number one. And then the cycle repeats. Wash, rinse, repeat. That's what happens all through judges. It's like they never learn. And so if you actually study judges, it'll start out, I mean, it starts out bad enough, but we'll see this cycle all through the chapters. And each time the cycle starts, the cycle gets a little bit worse, and a little bit worse, and a little bit worse, until we get to Samson, and that's a huge low point, If anybody ever tells you to be a Samson, I would question that. (laughs) You know, as we look at this cycle of idolatry, one of the easiest things to do is to say, you know what? That's them. Thank goodness we are not like that today. Some of you are smiling because you know better. We are just like this, aren't we? When things are going well, and we have peace and rest, we forget God. And then life gets horrible, and then we get closer to God, and we cry out to God, and ask God to intervene. And because God is so gracious and loves us, he does. And he'll provide an answer, and direction, and relief. And then life will be going well again, and then guess what we do again? We forget God. Let's go to part number three. So we've talked about what is idolatry, and the cycle of idolatry, Let me talk about what idolatry does to us. Last week, we saw in chapter 2, verse 3, so this is last week's text, it mentioned that idols are snares and traps. It says they will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. So whatever we serve more than God will entrap us. It'll enslave us, just like the Israelites were oppressed and enslaved by their enemies. Idols will do the same thing to us. But let me show you the image that we see in our text today. In verse 17, it says, Yet they would not listen to their judges, but what's it say? But prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. So what is the Bible saying? When we worship and serve other gods, we are what? We are prostituting ourselves to other gods and worshiping them. How many of you, that's a surprising image that the Bible uses? I know for me it is. But if you actually look up that image of prostitution and harlotry in the Old Testament, we see this kind of language used all through the Old Testament. In fact, this would be one of those big themes we can study on a Wednesday night that just goes all through the Bible. I was shocked to see that when I read another translation, the ESV, the English Standard Version, says that they hoard themselves to other gods. They played the whore. That's what it says in other translations. I mean, that's stark imagery. When we serve and worship other gods, the Bible is saying that we are giving ourselves away like a prostitute would. And I know that in the world, being a prostitute is complex. That Some people feel like they have to do it. Nobody wants to do it. But just think of this image of prostitution for a second here with idolatry. A prostitute will come into an intense relationship with their customer they will give of themselves to get something and always giving more and more with getting less and less in return. It's an intense, really a gross, vivid image that when we give ourselves to our idols, we are giving ourselves away, coming into an intense relationship with that thing or whatever it is without really getting anything in return. Our idols use us and abuse us just like a customer would use and abuse a prostitute. So this is shocking language. I actually praise God that this image is used of this in scripture because for me, it got my attention when I saw, oh my goodness. When I worship and serve something else, it's not just a casual relationship that I have with this thing. I am prostituting myself to that thing. So did you realize if you are serving and worshiping something else like money or career or whatever it is, that you are enslaving yourself to that thing, giving of yourself? in the most intimate way? This takes me to part number four. So how do we actually break free from our idols? How do we do that? Well, we've talked about it a little bit already. One step is to identify your idols. We've been thinking of that all morning. But another way you break free is to think of this image a little bit more of prostitution. I know it's not a fun image to think of But if if our sin and our idolatry is compared to prostitution, then that means every time we cheat on God and love something more than God, then it's also spiritual adultery. So there's idolatry. Idolatry with an I is really the same thing as spiritual adultery with an A. And so this means, if you keep pressing the logic a little bit forward, that God relates to us not just like a king or a shepherd or a judge or a father. He does all those things, but God also relates to us as a spouse. He is so committed to us that he has made a covenant or a contract with us, and he is willing to move heaven and earth to save us, just like he saved the Israelites. And he is married to them, but they have cheated on him just like we cheat on him repeatedly. You know, one of the passages I encourage you to read today is Hosea. Chapters one and two and three in the Old Testament, because do you know what Hosea the prophet was called to do? He was called to go and marry Gomer. And what was Gomer's profession? She was a prostitute. And God says, Go and do this. Be faithful to her, even though she's not going to be faithful to you. And so he marries her. They have children together with a lot of weird, funky names about God's relationship with Israel. And yet God tells Hosea, be faithful and committed to her. And this becomes a picture of God's relationship with us. How God is like Hosea and we are like Gomer, the prostitute, cheating on God. And so this makes sense. Whenever we cheat on God and commit idolatry, our text said repeatedly that God is angry. He was angry at this. It aroused the Lord's anger. He was very angry because like a spouse who's been cheated on, that's how God feels. I mean, if you have a significant other, whether you're dating them or it's your spouse, if you find out that they're cheating on you, your reaction is just not going to be, well, you know what? You win some, you lose some. No, you're going to be just struck. You're going to be angry and righteously so because that is your person. That is the person you've committed to and they've committed to you and they've broken the covenant. Well, the same is true with God. When we cheat on God, we have broken our marriage vows with God. The Bible says that God is a jealous God. That's getting at that imagery of marriage, that God is married to us. Well, here's the good news in all of this, all right? I know this is pretty heavy stuff. The amazing thing about all this is even though we've cheated on God repeatedly, like a prostitute, the Bible says, God is willing to send his son, Jesus Christ. And look at what the text says about Jesus in the New Testament. Look at what Jesus calls himself, Jesus answered in Mark 2, verse 19, how can the guest of the what? Bridegroom fast while he is with them. They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom, that's Jesus, will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. So do you see what the Bible says about Jesus? He's our what? You can shout it. He's our bridegroom. Just as God was married to Israel in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament is laying claim to us as our ultimate spouse. He's our bridegroom who's willing to move heaven and earth to bring us back. And just like a prostitute would give up their body, Jesus goes to a more nth degree and he gives up his entire body on the cross when he is bruised and beaten and naked and broken in our behalf bearing the weight of sin and guilt and punishment on himself on the cross. Jesus is willing to give up his body in an even more intense way than we do when we give ourselves to idols. And he does this because he loves us. He cares for you. He cares for you and me so much that he's willing to move heaven and earth to bring us back and to woo us back and to win us back. And if you keep following this theme of marriage through scripture, in the book of Revelation chapter 19, We are united with our bridegroom at the marriage supper of the Lamb, fully and finally. So the question is, how do we actually break free from these idols? We mentioned identifying them. But what I'm trying to say with all of this imagery is that we have to worship Jesus daily. Because we worshiped ourselves into idolatry, whatever it is, whether it's a sport team or pornography, whatever it is. And we have to worship our way out of this to Jesus Christ. And the amazing thing about Jesus, if you actually worship him and give him everything in your life, hold nothing back, he is the only God in your life that will actually fulfill you. Because if money is your God, how much money do you need to ultimately be satisfied? What's the answer? Always a little more. If acceptance and approval is your God, how much acceptance and popularity do you need to be satisfied? Always a little more. But if you actually find Jesus and submit to Jesus, then you will actually be satisfied. And if you actually fail Jesus, which we will, he'll actually forgive us. Our idols can't forgive us, but Jesus can. Would you go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes and just think for a moment. I'll invite Mike and Alexis forward too. I want you to ask God this morning, ask him, what is the thing, what is my idol or idol's? Because like the Israelites, we may worship God to some degree, but there's a lot of things that creep in. then ask God this week, if you've identified it or started to, how can you worship the bridegroom, Jesus Christ? Because he gave it all for you so that you would surrender it all to him. Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would move and blow in an abundant way. Lord, really make it clear the idolatry in our own lives. Lord, even as we read through the book of Judges, make it more clear that we are the same as them. And Lord, I also pray too that we wouldn't just drown in our sin and sorrow, but that it would cause us to look to Christ, the ultimate judge and leader that we need, who frees us, who is willing to move heaven and earth to come down to us and rescue us from our sin and death and the devil on the cross. Lord, help us to see Jesus crucified every single day and to know what he did for us. And may that break us free from our idolatry, we pray. Lord, may we leave here with hope, knowing that you can free us, knowing that you want us back and will forgive us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.